It may have been a, a heavy doctrinal study to begin with, but it flowed right into an exhortation about how we're able to live with peace and confidence as we reflect on God's sovereignty and, we can, uh, and the certain victory we share in Jesus Christ. So then this moved right into uh, this doctrinal understanding of the resurrection uh, of Christ, which translates into uh, faith. Uh, Pastor Greg shared that last week. So that brings us to the conclusion of this very long letter to the church at, in Corinth. Excuse me. <clears throat> so now we're at the beginning of the ending of Paul's long letter. You with me so far? Okay, you got me? Okay, picking up what I'm putting down. All right. So this is his long letter to the church in Corinth. He's given instructions about a special collection. He shares his upcoming travel plans, talks about some people. I think right now would be a good place to stop and tell you that I'm on vacation a week from today. So why don't we take a collection? No? Okay, that's probably not what they're talking about here. All right, uh, it's not what's going on here. This last, last section of this letter uh, just might seem like it doesn't apply to us um, today, to our lives today, but actually it, it covers three areas of stewardship that I believe are very important to the 21st century church. So I need to ask a question. How many of you just heard the word stewardship and turned off your brain? Our chairman of the deacons, thank you. Um, wow. <laughs> If you grew up in a church, you would hear the word stewardship. You may have even had a, a stewardship Sunday, and it usually was the pastor getting up there, and he's going to talk about tithing because he wants to go on vacation, um, or he wants a raise, or we need something done in the church. Okay, that's not what's going on in this letter. It is and it isn't, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. So I just wanted to point out what stewardship is. Let me see if I can put this simply. Okay. God is the author of all, correct? Thank you. Anyone else? God is the author of all, right? Okay. He's the creator of everything. So everything you have, he's the owner and creator of, correct? Okay. Then that, then we're getting, we're getting to it, right? So stewardship means that we are the managers. He's the owner. We're the managers of the things in our life. Your money, your family, where you're serving, your, your gifting, whatever. God owns it. We are the ones that are managers of it. So we got that, right? Okay. Okay, that's what stewardship is. Does that make sense? Okay. I just wanted you to have a good idea of stewardship. It isn't just about money. So I didn't want people to think that. All right. So there are three areas we said that are, I think are important to us today, and that is money, opportunities, and people. See, we are going to talk about money. These three things are probably the greatest resources that the modern church has, and they shouldn't be wasted. So let's go right into the first uh, part of uh, Paul's closing this letter, where he talks about money in verses 1 through 4. I know that uh, Paul just read this. I'm going to read it again, just that part. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Okay. So this, this part of the Bible, this chapter of the Bible, of this letter, right, starts with now concerning, which means Paul is replying to something that he's been asked. Remember, he was sent a letter. The Corinthian church sent him a letter. He's in Ephesus. And so this is him replying to something they said or asked about in that letter. 
One of the most important ministries Paul had during his third journey was gathering of a, uh, the gathering of a special uh, relief fund, a relief offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem, as he mentioned in uh, Galatians 2. And speaking on uh, the text that I just read, uh, comment, uh, the commentator Matthew Poole states, the business of relieving the poor members of the church is a moral duty, a sacrifice with which God is well pleased. And he goes on to say that our faith must work by this love, that we should be doing this. The Corinthians had apparently heard about the collection through members of the Galatian churches, and Paul's instruction to them was repeated. You need to do this also. I find it interesting that Paul never uses the word tithe. He doesn't say tithe. He doesn't say tithing uh, when he discussed giving. And, and uh, even though he gave more attention to giving than any other New Testament writer, he doesn't use the word tithe. Paul did teach that giving should be done systematically at the beginning of each week and that it was to be proportionate in keeping with one's own income, meaning that if uh, income of some permit them to give a greater proportion, they should, while others, due to the limited resources or other constraints, they would give less. What was important was that giving was to be a unified ministry with each one participating. Regardless of their income, the gift was to be sent off gladly. He talks about that in, later on in uh, 2 Corinthians, not grudgingly. But each person, each believer, was to participate in this. Now, Paul's practice in money matters was, was very ethical, was above board. Not only did he avoid solicitation for himself, you know, like I just did earlier, he didn't do that. He wouldn't ask for vacation money. Um, but he also acted to meet the needs of those in the church uh, that he could, but he avoided direct, um, direct, direct involvement in handling of the monetary gift. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to touch it if he didn't have to. He preferred instead that individuals from the various uh, congregations elect representatives to bear their gift to Jerusalem. And then he, maybe he'll accompany them, accompany them if they asked, right? Paul wanted to achieve several purposes in these offerings. For one thing, the Gentiles owed material help to the Jews in return for the spiritual blessings the Jews had given them. We find that in Romans 15. At the Jerusalem conference years before, Paul agreed to remember the poor. So he was keeping his pledge that he made in Galatians 2.10. So Paul not only preached the gospel, but he also tried to assist those uh, who had physical and material needs within the church. So why did Paul ask for this giving? Well, in the early days of the church... You know, back in the book of Acts when the church first started, members gladly shared all of their resources with each other. Do you remember that? Remember reading Acts where they talked about that? They shared all their resources back in Act 2, uh, Acts 4. But even those resources were limited. There had also been a famine that came about around the time of Acts 11, and the relief that was sent couldn't last for that long of a time. So apart from keeping his promise and meeting a great need, Paul's greatest motivation for taking up the offering was to help unite Jewish and Gentile believers. And you might be like, oh, I don't get it. What do you mean? You got to remember that Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. And that bothered some of the Jewish believers in Acts 17. They didn't want him doing this. They thought the Gentiles, no, no, we Jews are the chosen people. No one else, no one else becoming part of the family of God. But Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul hoped that this expression of Gentile love would help heal some wounds and build some bridges between the churches. Again, you have Jews who say, I don't want you to be part of this. Well, if the Gentiles are sending money, hey, we understand you guys are hurting, here you go. Maybe that will help out build a little bit of a connection there. And if you want to know more about the offering, you can read that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9. 
So from Paul's instructions, we can learn some basic principles that relate to Christian stewardship. One, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. Each member was to come to the Lord's Day gathering prepared to give his share for that week. Paul expected everybody to do this. Everyone that was coming to church was expected to do this as an act of worship. It's tragic when church members give only as a duty or not give at all, and they forget that our offerings are to be spiritual sacrifices presented to the Lord. Did you know that? Our giving is supposed to be a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. You can read that in Philippians 4.18. So giving should be an act of worship. Giving should be systematic. He instructed each believer to set aside his offering at home and then bring it to the assembly on the first day of the week. Now, for him specifically, he said it then because instead of him going around to each believer's home collecting or someone collecting, that it would be there and they could have it in one place so it can be brought off to Jerusalem. But each believer was instructed to set aside his offering at home. The word we're calling, I'll use here, is premeditated. He wanted them to be thinking about the blessings they're receiving so they can share with others. If church members today were as systematic in their giving as they are in handling their own finances, the work of the Lord wouldn't suffer as it does sometimes. Unfortunately, it does. Yes, we can look at this church and say, wow, we have so much here, and absolutely, the Lord has blessed us so much here, but there's still so much more work to do. Unfortunately, with some things, it takes money. I was just talking with Joe Fucci this morning, uh, one of our deacons, about, um, I don't know what they're calling it. It's a woman's uh, home that they're building uh, in Nashua, or they're hoping to get up and running. There's a need for that. During COVID, I personally know, through my counseling contacts, that a lot of these places shut down. There's always a need. All right. So giving should be systematic. Giving is personal and individual. Paul expected each member to share in the offering, the rich and the poor alike. Anyone who had an income was privileged to share and help those in need, and he wanted all to share in the blessing. I'm going to rabbit trail. I have my notes here, so I'm going to walk over here so I'm away from my notes, so you know I'm rabbit trailing. I'm going to rabbit trail for a moment. How many of you shut your mind off when I said each member? Don't raise your hands, please. How many of you sat there thinking, well, I'm not a member of Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. This doesn't apply to me. I'm going to be harsh here. Shame on you. If you've been sitting here as someone who participates in this church for years and you have not made the commitment to become a member, I'm not sure why. If you tell me, well, the Bible doesn't say you need to be a member of a church, I will say to you, what do you think all these letters are that Paul wrote? He was writing them to who? People at churches to tell them where they're messing up, and they aren't friendly, warm, fuzzy letters, are they? If you've been paying attention, they're, they're rebukes. We are to take part of the blessing, part of that is being a member. If you, how many of you have jobs? Can you raise your hand if you have a job, if you do work and get paid? Okay, quite a few of you. All right. So let's say you sign up uh, for your new job and you show up and like, hey, thanks for the new job and I'm getting the X amount of dollars a week, but I'm not actually going to come in. I can't make that commitment. I want you to give me money. I still want to be your employee, but I can't commit. How many of you are married? Anybody married in here? Anybody? Anybody? A couple of you? Okay, a few of you. 
How about on that wedding day when you're at the church getting married or the Chapel of Love in Nevada, like some of you? Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not where Nancy and Bill got married. How many of you, when the person over officiating the wedding says, do you take so-and-so? I'm like, well, um, actually, I'm going to live with them, and we're going to act like we're married, but I'm not going to wear the ring. I want no commitment. I, I just can't be committed to this. Does that make sense? How about in your family? Oh, a new baby. So beautiful. Okay, Mr. Grant, you can take your beautiful baby daughter home. I really don't, I'm not that committed. Um, I'll be her dad, and when she's older and making money, I'll call. But um, right now, not so much. I can't make that kind of commitment. I will sit here for the next 20, 30 years, but I can't make that commitment. Doesn't make sense to me. All right, I'm off my rabbit trail. I'm back to giving as personal individual. Sorry. I've preached on membership before. Some of you have received letters from me on membership. It's part of what we're supposed to be. It's part of being a commitment. It's part of saying, well, I said I was going off the rabbit trail, didn't I? It's part of being part of a family. It's part of saying, I commit to being part of this family. And yes, that means good or bad. That means, yes, I'm going to be there in love with you. But that means also we're going to get on each other's case. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to iron sharpen iron, I think is what it was called. All right, now I'm off the rabbit trail. Okay, sorry. Oh, I went backwards. Sorry. Giving is to be proportionate. As God has prospered him, he said in verse 2, suggests that believers who have more should give more. The Jewish believers in the church, they're accustomed to this sacrifice. This is a no-brainer for them. They've been doing this for generations upon generations. They did it when God was with them in the midst of their tabernacle telling them what to do. So they're used to that. So here Paul is trying to tell the Gentiles, hey, you guys have to do this too. And he didn't he didn't uh, mention any special amount. He just said, as the Lord gives more, we should plan to give more. The Lord is blessing you. We all just agreed a second ago, a minute ago, that God is the author of all. So God is blessing you with these things. We should be ready to bless others with it. Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that Christian giving is a, is a grace the outflow of the grace of God in our lives and not the result of promotion or pressure. Some of you may be hearing this as pressure because Jeff wants a raise. That's not it. I want everyone to share in the blessings that we're supposed to be sharing in. If we appreciate the grace of God extended to us, we'll want to express that grace by sharing with others. That's what your giving does. It's interesting to me that Paul mentioned the offering just after his discussion about the resurrection. You're like, no, no, that was chapter 15. This is chapter 16. In the original manuscripts, in the original letter, there's no page breaks. There's no little titles, you know, no little headings. Literally, the readers would go right from Paul's hymn of victory into the discussion about money. Why? Because doctrine and duty go together. Worship and works go together. Our giving isn't in vain because our Lord is alive. It's his resurrection power that motivates us to give more and to serve. Which brings us to our next greatest resource that the church has, which is opportunities. In verses 5 through 9, he says, listen to what Paul wrote here. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. 
but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay, so Paul's informing his friends at Corinth of his, his plans uh, for future travel and ministry, but notice the statements he made there. They're very tentative. It may be wherever I go, but I hope. He was aware that the entire plan was dependent on God's providential leading, that God may not lead him this way. That's what Paul wanted. It may not be what God wanted. And he says that when he says, if the Lord permits. It was Paul's plan to leave Ephesus, his place of ministry at that time, and journey through Macedonia, the region north of Corinth, uh, where the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and presumably Berea, Berea, Berea are. Sorry, Paul was at Ephesus, remember, when he wrote this letter. And in the winter, it's impossible to travel by ship in that area. So for the time being, Paul intended to stay on at Ephesus in ministry, where the opportunities and the opposition, he said, were both great. But there were some problems to solve in the Corinthian church, and Paul had promised to come help the leaders back in 1 Corinthians 1. So what did Paul do? Well, he intended to send Timothy, one of his assistants. He's planned to send Timothy to Corinth. The younger man sometime traveled in Paul's place, uh, when, we read the, when Paul read the passage, that Timothy might have caused a fear while ministering in Corinth confirms, as this letter indicates, if you read the whole letter as a whole, 1 Corinthians, this confirms that working with the Corinthian church was no picnic. Could you imagine that? Being in ministry and working with a church and it's no picnic? I can imagine that. If you've worked in ministry, I see a lot of smiling faces from ministry directors out there. You can imagine it. Sometimes it's not a picnic. Sometimes it's not a picnic. However, circumstances forced Paul to change his plans at least twice, and it turned out to be a quick and painful visit to Corinth. After that, he returned to Ephesus. Then he went on to Troas to wait for Titus, his other assistant. Then he visited Macedonia and went on to Judea. Paul didn't spend as much time in Corinth as he hoped for or as much time as they expected him to. So Paul began this conclusion with a pointed exhortation back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's a command. The command, be steadfast, immovable, can be translated as be diligent in carrying out the will of God. In view of the Corinthians' susceptibility to false teachers... The exhortation to stand firm in the faith was a timely reminder. So too were the closing exhortations he, met, he made to be men of courage and to be strong. You may, have heard, you may remember hearing Paul read that. He told him, be strong, be courageous. He didn't mean, hey, be strong and be courageous. Like, make sure you can go lift that tree. Make sure that you can face down a lion. That's not what he was saying. He was telling them that they needed to be marked by maturity as believers they need to be mature as believers and not like infants swept easily aside. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians 14. He was saying to the people in his church, grow up, be more spiritually mature. Don't let the way of the world and the way of the people around you sway you back and forth like little children. That sort of diligence and commitment is required if everything is to be done in love. So what do we learn from this difficult experience of Paul's? Well, for one thing, we learn that a Christian must use common sense. We need to use common sense. A Christian also must pray. A Christian must study the situation and seek the best he can to determine the will of God, which is not always easy. Second, 
Our decisions may not always be in the will of God. Our decisions as humans may not always be in the will of God. It may be what we want to do, but it may, need, may not be what God wants us to do. We might make promises that we can't keep. We might make plans that change or can't be fulfilled. Does that mean we're liars or failures? No. It doesn't mean you're a liar or a failure. The, the believers of the church in Corinth thought Paul was deceptive and couldn't be trusted because of this. Because, hey, you promised you were going to come fix these problems. You said you'd be here at this time, and you didn't. So you're a liar. Things happen. I know in my own ministry, I've, I've had to change plans. I had to alter my schedule because of situations I had no control over. Does this mean that I was out of the will of God? Maybe. Maybe. But not necessarily. We don't know what God's plan is. That's why we need to make sure that we're praying. We're looking at the situation. We're making sure we're finding out what God's will is. These are two extremes we, we have to avoid um, in the important matter of seeking God's will. We should seek God's will, but there's two things we need to avoid. These are going to be hard to hear for some, maybe. Kind of harsh, but I'm going to share them. One is we need to avoid this, okay? One, we need to avoid being so frightened at making a mistake that we make no decisions at all. I've done this. I've been so frightened at making a decision that I make no decision at all because what if I make a decision and Mike doesn't like it or Matt doesn't like it or Susan doesn't like it? So I make no decision at all because I don't want to hear from them. We here, in my time as a member of Merrimack Valley Baptist Church over the past 20 years, we have been guilty of this, not making a decision because we're too afraid. We can't let that happen. Then there's the other side. We need to just make sure that um, we don't make impulsive decisions and rush ahead without taking the time to wait on the Lord. I've done that too. We've done that here. I personally have done this. Where this is a great idea, we need to do this. But we didn't take any time to pray and ask God, should we be doing this? Those are two things we need to avoid at all costs in seeking out the will of God. After we've done all that we can to determine the leading of the Lord, yeah, then we must decide and act and then leave the rest of it up to God. If we are some way out of his will, trust me, he will let us know and he will guide us back to being within his will. And in my own personal experience, I know that's not always comfortable. Actually, usually never, I probably shouldn't use an absolute, but most of the times, not comfortable at all. But the important thing is that we sincerely want to do his will and not our own will. Paul had an open door of ministry in Ephesus, and this was important to him. He wanted to win the lost in Ephesus. Because remember, Ephesus wasn't a church yet. He wanted to win the lost there. He didn't want to go back to Corinth to a church that's already established to pamper the saved. It's a harsh thing to hear, but that's what he was telling them. I need to stay here. I want to stay here. You guys are believers. You should have your act together is what he's telling them. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Neil Cushman preached here on um, open doors. He actually used 1 Corinthians 16.9, I believe. Uh, he preached on open doors or opportunities that God presents us. He quoted Acts 14, 2 Corinthians 2, Colossians 3, Revelations 3. We need to make sure we're looking for those opportunities. Apollos, who was also in Ephesus with, uh, with Paul, hadn't chosen to return to Corinth with Timothy, Timothy despite Paul's strong urging that he do so. Maybe Apollos didn't want to contribute 
to any more division that he knew was there. Remember back in 1 Corinthians when Pastor Greg first started preaching on this, they talked about, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. That means there are people saying, I like Paul, but not you, Apollos. Or I like Apollos, but not you, Paul. I don't want you preaching, I want him preaching. Some of them, it sounds like they had it right. Hey, I just want to hear about Jesus Christ. But Apollos didn't want to contribute to that division anymore. Or maybe he too wanted to just take advantage of the open-door ministry at Ephesus. Paul saw both the opportunities and obstacles in Corinth. God had opened a great door for effective work, and Paul wanted to seize the opportunities while they were still there. So the stewardship of opportunity is very important. The individual believer and the church family must constantly ask, what opportunities is God giving us today? Instead of complaining about the obstacles, we must take advantage of the opportunities and leave the results with the Lord. I'm going to confess something right here. How many of you out there are my VBS workers? Thank you for meekly raising your hands, except for a couple of you. So um, I've been leading over VBS, not just here, but in churches for 20, uh, 25 years now. I can't possibly be that old. No, that sounds right, actually. Uh, my wife and I have been doing this for 25 years. Um, here, I have told our workers in every meeting or in our meetings that, hey, stop complaining. It's going to be what God wants it to be. We need to take advantage of the opportunities coming in. This year, you heard me say this morning that I'm panicked. I want to thank some of you out there who have come to me and said, hey, Pastor Jeff, stop complaining and take advantage of the opportunities and leave the results with the Lord. For those of you that did that and you know who you are, thank you. I needed that reminder. Okay, that brings us to the next, the third greatest resource that we have as a church. People. Often at the close of his letters, Paul named various people who are part of his life and ministry. A group from the church in Corinth, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and, and uh, Achaicus, had come to visit Paul in Ephesus, most likely bringing with them the letter that Paul's replying to in this letter. Paul commends the household of Stephanus to the Corinthians as the first uh, converts to faith uh, in the region, um, and that they're devoted servant leaders. And sometimes Paul would appoint elders in the church, right? Like we saw in Acts 14, he would, he would appoint elders. But in this instance, members of Stephanus' household voluntarily took on the responsibility, and Paul tells the Corinthians to submit to their leadership. One primary qualification for church leadership is a willingness to serve. A primary qualification for church leadership is a willingness to serve. Find that in Matthew 23, Luke 22. To those who labored with this spirit, the willingness to serve spirit, submission on the part of the others in the church was due. What do, what do I mean by that? This is what I mean. When somebody is willing to step up in a ministry and do it, hey, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Greg, Pastor Dan, Pastor Joe, Pastor Dave, Pastor Aaron, I'm going to step up in this ministry. I'm going to do it. I'm going to come and help you in this ministry. Shame on you if you're that person sitting back in your chair as an armchair quarterback saying, you're doing it wrong. I could do it better. Then please come do it. Well, I'm not going to do it. No, I don't. I can't commit. These are people who committed themselves to serve. Thus, other people in the church, you need to be in submission to them, not in, not in an unbiblical way, but in a biblical way. 
And by their very presence, these three men were able to refresh and encourage Paul, despite the fact that they, again, also brought confirmation, most likely, of the bad news earlier reported by Chloe's people in 1 Corinthians 1. So money and opportunities are really not worth much without people. The church's greatest asset is people, and yet too often the church takes people for granted. You may be sitting there and saying, oh, absolutely, this church takes people for granted. I've been to a church that takes people for granted. Uh, I'm not talking about the organization. I'm not talking about this building. I'm not talking wholly about the pastors, partially, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about us, Big C Church, take people for granted. You know, Jesus did not begin his ministry by saying, hey, here's some silver coins, you disciples. Here's some silver coins. Go out and get converts and then report back every quarter how you're doing. That's not, how he, that's not how he trained his disciples, right? How did he do it? He spent three years with them. Three years training and discipling them for service so they might seize the opportunities that would be presented to them later on. If people are prepared, if people are discipled, then God will supply both the opportunities and the means so that his work will be accomplished. Mature disciples lovingly submit to Jesus. Mature disciples lovingly submit to Jesus. And then disciples discover, believe, connect, serve, and multiply. That may sound familiar to some of you. These are part of the principles and practices that we value here at MVBC. You can see them out on the wall out here. That's part of what we value here. I shouldn't turn my head, then my microphone comes off. So, Timothy along with Titus, both assistants of Paul's. Wait a minute, let me think about this. Paul, Paul was the shepherd of these churches, correct? The overseer, the bishop, what's another word for that? Pastor. So he's the pastor of these churches. So that means Timothy and Titus were assistant pastors. Mind-blowing, huh? It is. It is to me as an assistant pastor. So Timothy is usually sent to the most difficult places. I can understand that. Timothy learned his lessons well and made great progress in his ministry and eventually took Paul's place at Ephesus, the most difficult place to minister. Could you imagine being the person that had to take the Apostle Paul's place. I bet you that wasn't easy. Can you imagine all the people in these churches being like, whoa, 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 Paul is our pastor. We love him so much. We've been with him for so long. What do you mean you're going somewhere else, Paul? We don't want anybody else. That's like hard to imagine. All right, maybe not so much for some of us. We've lived through that if we've been in churches a long time. And at one point, Timothy wanted to leave the city. I also understand that. But Paul encouraged him to stay. The advice Paul gave the Corinthians about Timothy kind of suggests that Timothy had been beaten up a little bit by ministry, and he needed all the encouragement he could get. The important thing was that he was doing God's work. A church shouldn't expect that every servant of God be the Apostle Paul. It's not going to happen. A church shouldn't expect that the new servant that's in them, whatever position they're in, is going to be exactly like the person that was there before them. It's not going to happen. Then we have Apollos, an eloquent Jew who was brought into the full understanding of the gospel by Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. He had ministered with great power at Corinth, and there was quite a following he had there, as we heard back in 1 Corinthians, right, chapter 1. And I think it's very unlikely that Apollos promoted this idolatry or this fawning over him that led to the division, because as we read about him, we see that his great concerns seemed to be preaching Christ. So in spite of the division, Paul didn't hesitate 
to say, hey, Apollos, I think you should go back there. I think you should go to Corinth for, for furthering your ministry. Can you imagine that? Okay, I want you to think about ego. We all have ego, right? So here is Paul, the pastor, and he knows there's people that are saying, I don't like you, Paul. I like Apollos better. But he's still willing to say, hey, Apollos, maybe you should go because the gospel needs to be presented there. They need to be sure they got it straight. But Paul wasn't going to place men against their will. Apollos didn't feel he should go to Corinth at that time, and Paul had to agree with him. It was wonderful the way these men worked together. They knew that there were churches, this church was split between the two of them, and they knew that didn't matter. What mattered is making sure the gospel of Christ was preached. That's wonderful, the way these men worked together. We also see here uh, Stephanus and his household, the first people to be won to Christ in, in the region. They became important leaders of the church for they devoted themselves to Christ's service. I think it's important here to point out that the text meaning they appointed themselves doesn't mean that they pushed their way into leadership in the church. It's not what's saying there. What they did is whenever they saw a need, they went to work to meet it without asking or waiting to be asked. They just went and they did it. They were Paul's helpers. They were his ministry heads. And they labored for the Lord. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing when an entire household, an entire family serves the Lord faithfully in a local church. They also refreshed Paul's spirit and brought him blessing. So this is a good place to encourage church members to refresh and encourage their pastors. Too often believers share only their problems or their burdens or their agendas with their pastors and rarely share the blessings. It's unfortunate to say, but it's true. So who is the pastor's pastor? Who do pastors turn to for spiritual refreshment and encouragement? Because Paul's talking about this here. So who does the pastor turn to for spiritual refreshment and encouragement? The answer to that is every church member. Every church member, if he, she wills, they can help refresh the pastor and make his burdens lighter. Paul even mentions uh, 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 Aquila and Priscilla. We all have heard of them, that dedicated husband and wife teams whose uh, lives and ministries intersected and intertwined with Paul's all over the place. Uh, This couple's names occur in the New Testament six times. And four of these times, Priscilla's name was first. What does that tell me? This is a guesstimation. So don't write this as a note. This tells me that probably Priscilla was the one who was more outgoing. She's probably the one who was willing to step up and serve where needed, and sometimes she would bring her husband with her. They both served, don't get me wrong. But I know from studying that they had the same issue there and that culture that we have in our culture today. Man, I'm sorry for this. But that women are more willing to step up and serve quicker than most men. They dealt with it there also. But they worked together in serving with the Lord and helping Paul. And every church can be thankful for these teams, for these husband and wife teams, these family groups who work, who work together in serving the Lord and helping the church leadership. And how many, how many people today would do what uh, Priscilla and Aquila did? They would literally pull up their stakes and move somewhere else to help further the gospel, which meant they had to move their work also. People with this kind of dedication and sacrifice are really rare, but they are great assets to the local church. Okay. Mark Richmond, you listening? You awake? Paul also writes, greet one another with a holy kiss. You know I wasn't going to go past that one. You know I was going to go past that one. Okay, what does this mean? Tim Keller writes in his book, Gospel and Life, Grace Changes Everything, that there are a number of directions in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss. 
We see it in Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, or with a kiss of love like we see in 1 Peter 5, 14. He says it is customary to skip over these verses with the thought that it was an ancient cultural greeting that we don't use anymore. In my experience, that's what, that's what pastors do. They're like, oh, that doesn't apply to us. We're going to skip over this. But Keller goes on to explain in his book that even if we grant the need for some cultural translation, okay, we can grant that to our own time, that doesn't remove our responsibility to obey the biblical command to communicate love and affection in a visible way. I know Lionel's talking to me from the back, so I'm going to repeat that one more time. That doesn't remove our responsibility to obey the biblical command to, to communicate love and affection in a visible way. I get it was common, a common mode of greeting back then. But if Paul were writing to churches today, he might say something like, make sure you show love to each other, hug each other, shake each other's hand, get involved in each other's lives. We have to make sure that as a church, we are willing to actually talk about our love for one another. I'm going to tell you right now, I love all of you. Some of you I don't know, but all of you that I know, I love you. Absolutely. You might be like, well, Pastor Jeff, that's because you're one of those weirdo guys that are all touchy-feely emotional. Maybe. And that it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that we need to do this. Really? This is John 13, 34 through 35. Guess who's speaking here? Jesus. This is where the Sunday school kids would say, Jesus? Yes. He says, a new, oh, wait a minute. What's that word? Commandment. Commandment? So it's not a suggestion? It's not a maybe? It's a command. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And they'll know we are Christians by our by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. We know the song? Okay. How many of us live it? Okay, so here we are at the end. Paul usually dictated his letters and then took the pen and added his signature, and then he would add his benediction of grace as a mark that the letter was authentic. You can see this in Galatians. You can see this in Second Thessalonians. Here Paul finishes by taking the pen from his scribe and writing a curse and a blessing in his own hand. How would you like to be that church getting that letter? Paul's personal note began with a compassionate warning, probably aimed at the false teachers, hearkening back to when, when he, what he was saying in chapter 12, um, whom he already believed these, these uh, false teachers, he already believed were in the church. So Paul invoked God's wrath on these false teachers, and in the same breath, he appealed for Christ to return. He's reminding them that to not love Christ means you don't believe in him. And what did he say unbelievers were? Accursed. So if to not love Christ means you don't believe in him, and unbelievers are accursed. Paul had been stern with the Corinthian church, but he closed his letter by assuring them of his love for them. After all, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Proverbs 27.6 the congregation in Corinth, Paul invoked what they sorely needed, the continued grace of the Lord Jesus. He assured them of what they hardly deserved, his fervent love, and he embraced the disunited lot of them as their spiritual leader in Christ Jesus. Paul's final words, written in his own hand, do much to reveal his heart 
of love, even though he had to rebuke these Christians strongly. Sometimes, that's what a shepherd has to do in ministry. I need you to hear that. Sometimes that's what a pastor has to do in ministry. Sometimes they do have to rebuke you. If you hear the word from a pastor, I need to rebuke you on that, don't get all offended and go crying to someone that, hey, I just got rebuked. As long as it's being done in love, and if you are doing something that's unchristlike or unbiblical, that is our job. That is our calling, and we answer to someone a lot higher than you. We answer to God. But it doesn't mean that we're doing it in malice. It doesn't mean we're doing it out of hatred. We're doing it out of love. Because I got to tell you, if someone doesn't like somebody or hates somebody, like truly hates somebody, are you going to waste your time talking to them? No. It was Paul's love for both Jesus and the church that made him such a great apostle. So what do we take away from the closing of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth? Well, like Paul, as we reflect on the victory we have in Christ, we can focus on living for God's kingdom. We can do this by being intentional about how we manage money, opportunities, and people that God entrusts to us. Our lives should reflect Jesus. I could just stop there. Our lives should reflect Jesus. And Paul gives us specific instructions in this, on this regard in these verses, 13 through 14. Watch. Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We would do well to memorize these words as we look at being a healthy church and examine our lives often to see if we're living in the way that reflects these instructions. That's what this letter was, an instruction to a church. God preserved it so churches in our time can read it and learn from it also. I pray that we do. And I know it means it's a letter to us pastors as well as to the people out in the congregation. We are all part of this church. Let's examine ourselves and see if we're living the way we've been instructed to live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be able to come here and worship you freely Lord, we are so thankful for this church, your church, Lord. We are also thankful, Lord, for your words, for this letter to a church so many, so many centuries ago that you preserved so we could learn from past mistakes and past instruction, so we could be the church you want us to be. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, that you fill our hearts with your words and that we're able to recall them to our minds minute by minute, hour by hour, and how are we are supposed to be as your church. Lord, bless this day for us. Allow us to be the church you've called us to be. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.